Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phil Iskov, and welcome to the very first episode of our new mini-series, Sex and the City Saturdays, as we explore the second season of Sex and the City, which aired in the summer of 1999. And I am absolutely thrilled to introduce uh, my guest today, who is uh, Emily Nussbaum, the staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of I Like to Watch, Arguing My Way Through the TV Revolution. Thank you so much for being here, Emily. I truly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So um, I just want to start, uh, as we do with as many of our guests as we can, which is to, to find out where you were in 1999 and how Sex and the City came into your life. <laughs> so I knew you were going to be asking me this question, but I was like, that was a long time ago. I was like, where was I in 1999? And the thing is, in 1999, <laughs> as best I recall, because there was a sort of blurry period when I went from graduate school into journalism. I think I had just started working at Nerve Online, and I was living in downtown New York. And I was, uh, if I'm remembering the dates right, I was, I think I'm exactly Carrie's age because I aged from 32 to 38 while she was on the show. So if it's the second season, how old is she? Well, however old she is. Yes, yeah, so something around there. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so she goes anyway, from 32. Was, yeah. She's like, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I was, um, I, I was working as an editor at um, Nerve Online, which was also a print magazine at the time, which was a magazine about sex and culture. So I actually, definitely had a slight identification with Carrie because while I was hardly a sexpert, which is what she's called on this episode, that we're she is. I, I, uh-huh. I, I, I was, I was working at sort of a downtown New York magazine that, that had a lot of, had a lot of racy intellectual material. 
Um, and I was working <laughs> as a freelance writer. I was writing for a bunch of different places. So that's, that's where I was. I was, I don't know. I was single. I was living in the West Village. So I, I was uh, I was living in Toronto. I was in film school when this uh, when this show premiered, and uh, it took a little bit of time for Sex and the City to get to Canada. If I'm being completely honest, you know, this was sort of the the early days of of as as we'll talk about a little bit, but the early days of HBO, of cable, of premium cable, and what that all means. Um, but I guess my question to you is: Did this show feel like the lightning rod that it was? immediately or was it a slow sort of thing how did it sort of how did it manifest for you as i remember it was immediately a cultural lighting rod in the in the media sense there were a million articles about it pro and con it was that classic kind of cultural phenomenon that's gone on for both books tv shows and movies largely by women that have some relationship to romantic comedy sex and like ideas about young single women and they're often end up as these punching bags and opportunities for people to say smutty things and to be excited about it and had a big fanhood, but it was also hated on from very early on. And actually my response to it, and I've mm-hmm. written about this a little bit, but mm-hmm. uh, it took me a few episodes to get into the show. I'm a big fan of the show. I, I love this show. But um, when I first watched it, I found it really alienating and slightly repellent, partially because of its tone of archness. But so I, I but I do remember people talking about it right from the start. I think when is the episode where they where they're driving in a cab talking about anal sex? Because I remember that had a yeah. big impact. I, I yeah, mean, it's. Yeah, it's sorry. funny you bring up that. It's funny you bring up that episode, which I believe is, uh, oh boy, like fourth episode or fifth episode, something like that, um, of the of the first season. Um, because that scene, which I, I recently just rewatched all of season one, as you know, just to do it in sequence and go into into season two, um, I, that scene feels like a real moment scene. It's a scene when the show really feels like, oh it understands itself now in a way that it perhaps might not have previous to that. It's really true. It's a, first of all, it's a great scene. It upset Mm -hmm. people. Um, and it was very funny and it's short, really well done. And you kind of have to see it sort of explain what's happening. Cause a lot of it has to do with the punchline at the end. You know, the four characters are really well defined, but it's not like there'd never been anything on sex uh, about sex on television, but it was the context of, the, the, the graphicness, the fact that it was for women discussing it, the fact that they were not just discussing sex, but they were discussing it in terms of power. I mean, to me, what was so interesting and controversial about the show right from the get-go was that it had this, it was about four single women in their 30s, and they were sort of talking about their value on the dating market almost as though it was Wall Street, and it was like a, a sex wars show. So it set people off in this way. I mean, there are a lot of different things that I think set people off. Like it seemed like a very queer show, which is ironic because a lot of people consider it somewhat homophobic now and argue about that. But there was a level where it was a gay man making it. It was arch. It was stylized. It was funny. It was dirty. Had gay men in it. Um, But at the same time, it was, yeah, I mean, it was a scandal magnet in this way. And, you know, Sarah Jessica Parker is delightful. And I think the other thing is for New Yorkers, it was based on this book that had itself mm-hmm. been based on this series of columns that was in the New York Observer. And you were in Toronto. So, I mean, I was in like Toronto. Yeah. Read, yeah. yeah. It wasn't like everybody read the Observer, but I had also read the column that the book was based well, on. Well, that, that was going to. 
Right. Um, I guess my question also would be, um, what was it like watching this show living in New York? I mean, I imagine that's a very different experience than the majority of people who watch it outside of New York. Yes, I think that's genuinely true. And I've often had this real struggle with people who, several sets of people, people who've mm-hmm. watched it and regarded it as some sort of documentary about New York, um, but also teenage girls often who watched it and regarded it as a blueprint for life in New York. Um, if you were watching it in New York, it's interesting because on the one hand, as I said, part of the reason I was put off by it was I was like, what is this cartoon version of a world that I know fairly well, but seems like three notches off, like very heightened, kind of mm-hmm. mean, sort of stark, a little, it felt a little sour and satirical in a way that I don't think I got initially and then clicked in with. But I have to say, sometimes when people talk about unrealistic things on the show, they're actually based on real stories that happened in the New York media. Like I can give you a ton of examples about this. A lot of the venues really? that are shown on the show. I'll give you a specific one that I always bring up because people are mm-hmm. always ranting about this with Sex in the City. Um, uh, the, the scrunchy scene that comes later yeah. with burgers. Um, mm-hmm. That was that was extremely explicitly based. There's a book called Slab Rats that a, a guy wrote about Condé Nast in you know around 2000 or whatever. And it got a really um, harsh review in the New York Times Review of Books that specifically, I think the review itself was called No Scrunchies. And it was specifically about the fact that a man had written a book about Condé Nast in the magazine and fashion industry. And he'd had a female character who was supposed to be stylish who was wearing a scrunchie. So the thing is, there were a lot of things <laughs> in the show that were yeah. actually weird, like hyperlinks or blind items or Easter eggs for, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't living in Carrie Bradshaw's world or the world of any of the other characters. They were kind of adjacent to me, but there were, there were things that you could recognize if you were a New Yorker that had to do with um, specific restaurants or blind items about particular artists or a general sense of how the media industry works. Again, not because it was specifically realistic, but you know, a lot of it, and having talked to some of the writers for the show, was based on stories of their lives and their relationships. So it's really sweet looking back on it, but also a little horrifying because it's just so distinctly a different New York than there is now. And you can really see that in this episode also. It's, it's a, yeah, I mean, we, we get our we get a Giuliani reference pretty early on in the episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on. I mean, frankly, even just seeing the, the Twin Towers in the background, like it was yeah. just... It, yeah. You know, there, there's, and then, you know, just the fancy fashion scene. It, it's, I, don't, I mean, I could talk endlessly about like my own response as a young woman <laughs> to this. Because one of the, one of the things was I related to the characters and thought they were interesting, charming, off-putting, you know, like various different things. But I could never interest, understand the men they were interested in. Because it's like <laughs> a baffling version of the world I lived in. Because nobody that I knew would have ever gone to like a downtown club and, and been like, oh, there's the next Donald Trump, Mr. Big, yeah. like these Wall Street Wall Street guys. Like I was not hanging out with a group of women who were particularly interested in dating Wall Street guys. We thought of those guys as pretty awful. So it, it was it, as as a New Yorker, I, I I felt like I was close enough to the scene that was being written about that I knew exactly what they were talking about, and it was it's quite precise, you know. Like Samantha is a certain kind of person, Miranda is a corporate lawyer from a recognizable kind of firm or lifestyle. So there is a way in which it was, there's a way in which it's accurate. There's a way in which it's not accurate. And, and yeah, if you were a New Yorker, it was easier to sort of recognize what was being heightened or, or satirized. 
Well, I feel like that taps into to something that um, so so you wrote a piece in the New Yorker in uh, July of 2013, uh, which I'm going to read a little uh, a little bit from in a second. But I, I do think that what you're what you're speaking of as well is of the unfortunate uh, superficial ways that people look at this show. I, I think that it's very easy to be uh, dismissive of this show, and 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 Lord knows there have been many critics that have been. Um, but I think that, um, and we mentioned this a little bit before we started recording, but I think that as the show progresses, it gets richer and richer and deeper. The characters become um, much more fleshed out. That's not to say that they're not fleshed out up top, but they just, um, they just, they, they, they bloom more and there's just a lot more sort of going on in them. And, uh, I think it's unfortunate that people sort of, I understand people that think that the show is a little bit dated. It certainly is at times. Um, it's certainly not as diverse as it should be. Um, there's, there's any number of things that, that, you know, perhaps, uh, it could have been better at. Um, but I just think it's a much more complex show than people give it credit for. And in this, uh, in this piece, you, I'm going to read a, a small portion here where you said, even the Sopranos had ascended to TV's Mount Olympus. Uh, the reputation of Sex and the City had shrunk and faded, like some tragic, dry-clean-only dress tossed into a decade-long hot cycle. By the show's 15-year anniversary this year, we fans have trained ourselves to downgrade the show to a guilty pleasure, to mock its puns, to get into self-flagellating conversations about those blinkered and blinked out, uh, blinged out, that is, movies. But Sex and the City 2 was once one of HBO's flagship shows. It was the peer of The Sopranos, albeit in a different tone and in a different milieu, deconstructing a different genre. Mob shows, cop shows, cowboy shows, those are formulas with gravitas. Sex and the City, in contrast, was pigeonholed as a sitcom. In fact, it was a bold riff on the romantic comedy. The show wrestled with the limits of that pink-tinted genre for almost its entire run. Yet in the end, it gave in. Yet until the last minute stumble it was sharp iconoclastic t- television uh, high feminine instead of feti- <laughs> fetishistically masculine glittery rather than gritty and daring in its conception of character sex and the city was a brilliant and in certain ways radical show it had originated the unacknowledged first female anti-hero on television ladies and gentlemen carrie bradshaw so i want to talk about that idea of how groundbreaking this show was at the time and if we're being completely honest still is and i think that's why the show holds up so well i think it's why it's so rewatchable um what what are your thoughts in terms of the the female anti-hero that is carrie bradshaw okay i will talk about the female anti-hero but i just want to say one thing about that essay i wrote that essay 15 (laughs) years after the show and that is a perfect amount of time it turns out to write a big show because it was a brutal atmosphere to defend this show for a long time. And I was, I was experiencing anxiety sweats the entire weekend that this came out Really, before this came out because it was so tense a subject that you would just get mocked and scorned for talking about it. And the show was, didn't get like, all terrible reviews initially. I mean, people talked about it all the time, but it was right. a charged thing. And 15 years later, I think, you know, and I'm proud of this essay. I think it's a good essay and it's supposed to be I think it's fantastic. a lot of ways, a lot of ways more than sex in the city. It's a Trojan horse for a larger idea about female centered mm-hmm. TV, comedy, stylization, things about sex instead of violence. All of those things are sort of part of the argument, but writing it 15 years later turned out to be a, a good time because I was trying to rescue it a bit. Cause I, I do feel like it, it still has some of these radical qualities and that the anxiety and anger that people feel toward it are part of the marker of that strangeness and aggression to the show. 
Um, Carrie is at the heart yeah, of totally. that because yeah. Carrie, Carrie is designed to create anxious feelings in viewers. And I feel like this is explicit in the show. And I think it was one of the big misunderstandings of the show because people seem to perceive far too frequently female characters as blueprints for behavior for viewers and as somebody that we're supposed to cheer for because they're spunky and good and they deserve love. And Carrie Bradshaw is just not like that. She is a needy chatterbox. She's clingy. She's anxious. This is explicit in the show. And I think it was a really challenging thing for a lot of viewers, both men and women. I mean, there was certainly a lot of misogynist scorn, you know, mm -hmm. thrown at the characters. But there were also people who liked or were interested in the show who were kind of freaked out by it. Because to watch Carrie kind of spin out in this poison relationship with this guy she had a crush on, and to deal with heartbreak as an intense drama in the way that it did, but also with the flaws of the characters in a lot of ways. I think people felt like their job as viewers was to diagnose what was wrong with her or why she was a bad friend or why she was a narcissist, all this kind of thing. To me, what can I say? I think that's a misunderstanding of the show. <laughs> and part of it, part of the reason that I always like, I actually quite like the first two seasons, even though I agree with you that as the show gets on, it kind of shows its ambition in a different mm -hmm. way. And that's partially because the characters themselves get older. I mean, they they start this show out as 32-year-olds. They get older and they change because of the relationships they're in. The world sort of changes around them and it moves from summer, spring and summer to this winter season as they're kind of dealing with um, being 40 and in this period, just dealing with their feelings about their relationships. But I, I, one of the things I love about the first two seasons, and this is present in the episode that I know we were gonna talk about, which is not like my favorite episode in the show. It has, despite my defense of the puns, I will say a certain amount of baseball puns. <laughs> a lo a lot, lot of baseball puns. Yeah. A lot of yeah. baseball puns in this one. But um, one of the things is that this early carry is actually a very shaggy, open-hearted, kind of transparently emotionally raw character. Like she's sweet and adventurous and kind of screwed up and intense and there, there's something about the way that it is willing to show her like neediness her in loveness and her heartbreak that I think even in the early parts of the show is is something that anybody who's been through a bad breakup and acted crazy you know could identify with and it, actually one of the things I liked about this episode is it's really about this problem of like what do you do when you feel damaged by a love relationship in which you feel you know, betrayed and vulnerable and like a loser and like all of this kind of thing. Like, how do you get over something like that? It takes it as seriously I agree. as anything anywhere. And, and I think that's one of the really lovely things about the show. And that's the subject of romantic comedies. And this show often made fun of fairy tales and kind of punctured them. But it takes seriously what it feels like to feel heartbroken. I 100% I, I agree with you. And, and, and to, to piggyback on it for a second, and uh, on something that you just said, and also this, but just the, the messiness of Carrie Bradshaw. Like, I think that that's a, a really big deal in the sense that up until this point, you know, having written on broadcast television myself, um, you're not really allowed to do that to your characters on broadcast TV, especially the lead of your show. They're usually pretty pristine. Um, and you know, it's interesting to see people out there struggling with, quote unquote, wanting to be a carry, but knowing that there's a lot of things that aren't necessarily positive attributes of Carrie's character. Um, but there's all these things that they do love about her and that they're conflicted about that. 
I think to your point, that makes for good television. That makes for a for a, a, an engaging experience as you watch this character grow and learn and change. Um, that's that's investment. That's I think what makes for good television. Um, and and I think it's interesting that that specifically women certainly weren't allowed to be that way on television up until this point. Um, and I think it adds to why Carrie Bradshaw and and all the characters on this show have such a, a long lasting uh, resonance. Well, it's one of the reasons that I compare it to The Sopranos. It's not that they're exact yeah. analogs. And I'm a huge fan of The Sopranos. I have another essay in my book that's about The Sopranos. But people <laughs> understood what it meant to have an anti-hero in Tony Soprano. They understood yeah. that you weren't supposed to root for the character, but you were supposed to identify with him, have an uncomfortable sensation of catharsis, and mm-hmm. you know, like be attracted to him. All sorts of things went on with the relationship of the audience and Tony, that's what is the engine of the show. They're very different shows. They work with different methods. They have different tools. But I, mm-hmm. I feel like people were able to accept that 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 level of um, ambiguity and conflict with a character like that, and and less so with a set of women. Um, there are probably exceptions that I could point out on TV, but I do think that it was a meaningful thing that there was a female character like this. There had been sort of spunky female heroines before. Um, Sometimes people sure. point out to me, Ally McBeal, for instance, is a character who is a bit of a precursor. I hated the show Ally McBeal, but I have to, <laughs> I, I, I personally thought that show was very messed up and I didn't like it when it was on for different reasons. But um, it's true that it's true that there are some precursors to like female characters that make people feel uncomfortable. Um, I just think the show's a better one. And, you know, the other characters yeah. are like this too. Like Miranda is, you know, this, this episode is an episode about um, Miranda thinking that she is virtuous and good and tough and feminist. And then by the yep. end of it being like, I have some problems and I'm putting them on you when you're going through yep. a hard time. And it's the most touching part of the episode. So. I, I, I would argue that the best relationship on the show is the one between Carrie and Miranda. Um, it is, it's the one that I feel has the most complexity. It's the one that often, I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest. It's their stuff that usually makes me cry. Um, I, I think that they just, they feel their bond to me is, is ultimately stronger than I think the bond that any two characters have on the show. Well, realistically, they're also the two characters who are the most likely to in real life be friends. I love all this the is characters. True too. And, this is true. And, I, and I, I, I think there are several, I mean, one of the things I talk about in that piece is the fact that mm-hmm. one of the things that was hard for people to, grok about the show essentially is that the characters are both emotionally realistic characters and almost like they're in some abstract play where people are debating subjects about sex and women and all this kind of thing they, they like fulfill these ideological positions so there's a way in which they're both abstract characters and real characters in real life would somebody like carrie know somebody like miranda yeah they seem to have sort of similar sense of humor they have yeah. some similar values it's true that carrie is a is a writer for a magazine and Miranda's a, a, a corporate lawyer, but it seems like they might've met. It, it's hard to imagine how, how Charlotte would enter the scene. Like you have to make up backstories they never give you, but I find it part of the pleasure of the show that you just accept it. But it's true that it's funny. If I think about the arc of the show, you know, that the, the circumstance where, I mean, Miranda has the wonderful episode about her mother dying. There are some very touching things that go on between them. But, you know, I, I, I like the episodes. There, there, there are only a few of them, but, you know, because the, 
they, their friendships are very idealized on this show. Yeah. Like the central mm -hmm. idea of the show is they offer each other the support. And the one truly sentimental thing that they always come back to is they're like, we always meet for brunch. We always back each other up. In real life, these are people who are very busy. They might have a big fight. One of them might, you know, not be hanging out every single Sunday. Um, but on this show, that's a stable thing. But I love the episodes where they have conflict because there's a few of them and they really stand out as markers of interesting stuff. And my favorite fight on the show is between Carrie and Miranda because when she leaves for Paris, I really think it's one of the, it's the standout yep. scenes. So. Yeah. Yeah. You're living in a fantasy. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. It's. Yeah, their 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 fight out in the street before she goes off to Paris is is really something special. But I mean, I, I, I admire about the show yeah. is people have fights where both people are right. Like that's yep. to me the mark of a good show. That's an argument where both of them are making extremely good cases, and the same is true when she breaks up with Aiden. Actually, like they have an argument where they're both right. So part of the reason which time I, like it, I think it's under <laughs> which time yeah the the one where they're. <laughs> I guess it's the, the one where they're engaged. Yeah, yeah. When they get engaged. engaged. Yeah. 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 Um, but, then, but, so, but my point yeah. is like when people write the show off as, as slight or fluffy or sort of candy, I think it's that kind of sophistication that they're ignoring. It's, it's, it I, just comes in a different form. I completely, completely agree with you. I, I think that, I mean, I've, I have rewatched this show many times, um, many, many times. And, uh, it is, it, 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 it does get better every time. I notice something new every time. If it's, you know, whatever it might very well be, I just, I find that the characters and their relationships, um, I just think it's very easy to dismiss it as a sitcom. And I think that that's, again, that's a preconceived notion that, that comedy is, quote unquote easier or or more disposable if you will than drama which is obviously not the case but that's sort of the way people think of yeah. it unfortunately yes yeah, i think that's um, absolutely true so I'm just going to give a very brief synopsis of this episode, uh, which is episode 201 called Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Carrie meets the new Yankee, Joe, at a baseball game, all the while prepping, uh, sorry, all while preparing for her first post-breakup encounter with Big. Miranda gets fed up with the girls always talking about men. Samantha gets frustrated with James's deficiencies. And Charlotte dates a guy named Paul Erickson who has a tendency to adjust his package a lot. Uh, Take Me Out to the Ball Game aired on June 6th, 1999, and it was written by Michael Patrick King and directed by Alan Coulter. Uh, the second season averaged a total viewership of 9 million viewers, which was up from the previous season, 6.9 million viewers. 9 million viewers is a lot of viewers for HBO back in, I mean, it's a lot of viewers even now, but like, that's a lot of viewers. It's, it's pretty incredible how quickly the show was such a hit. Um, it obviously got a whole slew of awards and nominations, a bunch of Golden Globe nominations for series, for Sarah Jessica Parker, for Kim Cattrall, Cynthia Nixon, um, Chris Noth as well, got a Writers Guild of America award in 99, got two uh, awards. And then at the Emmys, it was nominated for nine awards, series, lead actress, uh, Kim Cattrall as well, um, and uh, writers, executive producer Cindy Chupak, Michael Patrick King, got nominated for writing in a comedy series. Um, so Vulture actually did recently a, uh, a a list, a ranking of the best episodes of Sex and the City of all of the episodes of Sex and the City. And this fell at number 56, which feels about right. <laughs> yeah, I'd say um, so. <laughs> they, they said it's, it's a mixture of It's a mixture of good and and, and, and funny and terrible. <laughs> yeah. They basically, 
They say, uh, the show returns for a second season with swagger, building a just plain fun episode around the ladies attending a Yankees game, sunglasses, fur coats, heels, and all. They ogle baseball players in the locker room, make a lot of ball puns, and go meta with Miranda complaining about how much they talk about men. Sex and City has arrived, bitches. Which I think is a, a apropos and good review of this episode. Um, what, I guess I have a question for you, and this is sort of, this is a more general question for you uh, as, a, as a television critic, but... Um, how do you feel about premieres? I feel like premieres and finales have these added weight to them and they can be really hard to do. And I think this, it does it quite well, lays out the, yeah. the, the sort of, you know, table setting and what happens. Yeah. I, it's funny. I talk a lot about um, uh, finales because they're such a big deal mm-hmm. in TV. Sure. And I've talked to some, to some extent about pilots, but I haven't talked enough about premieres and seasons because it's true. <laughs> it's just, it's a hard trap. It's not even like the pilot of the show where there's, a huge amount that it has to do, but you know what it is. It has to establish yep. the world. This has to reintroduce you. And because I hadn't seen it in a long time, I was like, oh yeah, Carrie just broke up with Big. What happened? Like it sort of has to <laughs> fill you in and it just immerses you right away. It's a, it's, it's a funny episode. I mean, the truth is like, it's just, it's one of those things where it was not made for me because I'm not a baseball fan. By the way, it's, the one thing that really surprised me watching it is it was like, mm-hmm. is it ever followed up on that Miranda is apparently a huge fan of the Yankees? Like, is that part of the no. show? That was no. a surprising <laughs> taste from Miranda. A person who's like usually a little bit of a snob, likes biographies, is always, you know, like she's the most intellectual, academic-minded yeah. person. So. It it kind of comes out of nowhere. It's still funny. I still enjoyed it, but it, it did. It never. They never follow it up. It sort of comes out of nowhere, and it's kind of funny too because later on with Steve, who's a big basketball guy, um, right. there's no discussion of it at all. <laughs> so. little, I mean, in general, I find that there's pretty good continuity in the show. There are yeah. things about Paris from the first season that literally come into the last season. But mm-hmm. the, uh, Miranda and Steve both have some things that just. They are they're one kind of person early and they change later, but it's the nature of TV. (laughs) I was a little bit stunned to see her like, oh, you know, like just going gaga for the new Yankee and all that kind of stuff. But um, uh, but I will I I will start by saying there's only one one thing makes this episode bad is that it actually has genuinely one of the worst plots I've ever seen in the show because it just makes no sense. Now, I'm not averse to ball puns, but it's the only part of the episode because there's a bunch (laughs) of things I really love. But um, uh-huh. Charlotte often gets the dirtiest plot. People don't remember yes. this. But yes. this plot is just about her dating a jazz guy who <laughs> is always like grabbing his balls. But the thing yeah. is, there's no payoff to it because it's nope. literally just them sitting around and talking about balls. The crazy thing is, even though this is a completely stupid plot, she dates the guy for three weeks. Then she buys him fancy underwear to try to address the problem. He insanely and atypically unrealistically responds to this as though she's being overly clingy and breaks up with her. But somehow, even in this terrible plot, it actually had a bunch of good lines in it. Like, you know, it's just like classic Charlotte going like, how could he do this? He's from a good family. He went to Brown. (laughs) And then like somehow in the conversation, Miranda, like, uh, Samantha throws in, um, Nick Nolte got a ball lift. <laughs> so I'm just saying it was yeah. a very, it was a very dopey plot that you, it, it, like, it felt weirdly like a, a, one of those plots where you could imagine the writer's room saying, okay, who is this guy? I knew a guy who talked about jazz all the time. It was really annoying. Let's make him that. Like, it just doesn't really hold together. But the rest of the 
the rest <laughs> of the episode. We're, and it also doesn't have any emotional feelings, but it pays off the thing where the whole plot's about how long does it take you to get over a relationship? Because they just make yeah. a little joke about it. They're like, she dated him for three weeks. It took her a week and a half. That's something people say <laughs> all the time. By the way, that, that's, I don't know whether you heard that at, like when you were younger or anything, but like people saying it takes you half the relationship to break up with is a very familiar thing. So. It does feel very familiar to me as well. I, I, I think that to your point, it does feel like certainly in the early run of this show, Charlotte definitely gets the short straw most of the time. Her storylines tend to be shorter, less substantive, and just kind of... And the character grows and they start to weaponize her in, in much more interesting ways as, as the series progresses. But yeah, when, when, when the guy flipped out on her about the underwear, I was like, that's how we're wrapping up this storyline? I okay. mean, I honestly thought it, I remembered it differently. I thought that, isn't there some plot that Charlotte has where she asks the guy to stop doing something and he says, no, I like it. <laughs> like, I like doing it. <laughs> yeah, I thought yeah, that yeah. Was, I thought that that was this plot, but it just doesn't pay off. The rest of them are all good, especially the, uh, you know, and it ha- again, it has, even in the weird parts, it has funny lines in it. This is sort of dark lines. I love that when Miranda shows up to pick her up to go to the ballgame, she says, get your coat on, and Frank, we're going out. <laughs> like, she's yeah. just hanging out in her house and won't leave. It's just this thing I like. <laughs> that has this kind of rudeness. And, um, yeah, I mean... I- Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's a, there's, here, I had a question for you, actually, about, um, about Carrie a little bit. Because I do feel like there's an aesthetic kind of... And this might be the wrong word, but there's kind of a grunginess to Carrie through season one. And she looks wonderful in this episode. Like, yeah, no, she looks she's yeah, amazing. So yeah. great because her hair is a mess and kind of greasy. Yeah. She's wearing these yeah. weird sort of shaggy fur coats, and I think she wears more than <laughs> one of them. Like, it's yeah. very. And she's chain smoking all the time, and, and yeah. she, she looks completely different than she looked later on when she turned into this kind of iron-haired uptown person like she really looks bohemian and realistically upset uh, about what's going god in the last in that scene at the bar she wears didn't she wear braids in her hair in this crazy yeah yeah, like almost way so yeah Yeah. i think but but again it's one of the things i think makes sense for the show like but but it's something that i miss sometimes later on about the sort of more um adventurous grungy hippie kind of uh, Carrie that you could see as a freelance writer who thought of herself as a sexual adventurer. She, she like tightens up later on for psychological. For sure. It's, it's not yeah. It's, 
It's interesting because it does feel like she she there, there's obviously an evolution in, in in Carrie's character, and you can feel it manifested in the way that she dresses and and, and the way that she looks. Um, and I was just really kind of one of the things that kind of blew me away rewatching these episodes. It is how much she smokes. Like I just don't oh, think you'd God. have a character that smokes that much today. Um, it's kind of insane. <laughs> well, it has that huge payoff that it ends up being a big metaphor for her cheating on Aiden. Yeah. And her chain smoking yeah. ends up being just a sign of not not just her thing with Aiden and Big, but like a native self-destructiveness in the character that she thinks of as something romantic. Like, you know, the kind of romantic obsessiveness that is akin to <laughs> a, an addiction that will actually kill you, but you think is sexy and kind of old school, like a fantasy of a certain totally. person in New York. And she's at the height of this in this episode. But the, the scene where they go to the game is just visually beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. They're just in the cheap seats, lounging, eating hot yep. dogs. I don't know. It's very funny. And then they, it's great. again, even in I don't think the strongest episodes, they pay things off really nicely because I was surprised. I, I didn't know when they started losing the man on the street interviews that they did at the yep. beginning that ended up fading out. But in this episode, they have one and <laughs> taking place in the baseball in yep. the baseball field. This is very funny. So like it's like. The baseball player in the they just asked what was the what's the question they asked them like um, oh uh, it's about uh, don't the, one guy's like don't cry or you'll be the guy the that cries rules? yeah what are the breakup, breakup rules, rules? Yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, and, and, and and I don't know that's a very skillfully done montage like all of their answers are hilarious and they characterize a bunch of complete strangers in five minutes and you know as the show does as its best it captures a certain thing that's about conversations that you have when you're dating with people that are like, you know, what are the rules for this? Uh, you know, how long does it take to get over somebody? What are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to immediately get involved with somebody else? Or are you supposed to wallow? Like, like it, it's very basic stuff, but there's something really appealingly sincere and straightforward about it and it's woven into the whole thing. It's, it's a very, it's, I personally speaking, uh, the, the, the fourth wall stuff, um, like when Carrie would talk to the camera in season one, I, I was yeah. not particularly a fan of that. Um, and I'm glad that they got rid of that. Um, the, the man on the street stuff didn't, didn't bother me as much, but it did feel like, um, the, the show kind of had all these kind of peripheral characters, like people that, that she was friends with that we were supposed yeah. to believe she had these like long lasting friendships with that were there for like an episode. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm, I'm glad that that stuff dissipated and that they really just honed in on that, the sort of the main four and their relationships or the people in their orbits. Um, but it, it it's, I, I liked the stuff in the baseball diamond. I, again, I am not a baseball person. I'm not a sports person. So to me, this was all just sort of like whatever. Um, but I, I appreciated it. I liked it. Um, I thought the guy that played Joe uh, was really ch- yeah, charming and charismatic. Um, I, I want to just talk really briefly um, about Samantha's storyline because I think it's yeah, I an important storyline to talk about. Yeah. Um, so she meets uh, James in the finale of season one and she falls in love with this guy um, so much so that she doesn't have sex with him uh, because mm-hmm. she doesn't want to she doesn't want to spoil what they have or whatever, which is a little weird, but whatever. Uh, it's all to, to protect the joke, which is that James has a small penis. Um, we come into season season two and she's still with James and she's grappling with this problem. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's funny. And what I what I like about it is that as much of a joke as it is, and, it, and it's a good joke, 
it also just sort of underlines Samantha's love of sex and that there's nothing wrong with a, with her liking sex um, and and how disappointing it is to her to not have that in her life. Um, how did well, you well, feel well, about well, the storyline? Well, 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 to me, the James storyline is very important to the show and actually pays off amazingly in the next episode, I believe, when she breaks up with him. Because yeah. it's a really great thing that Samantha breaks up with him because she is not sexually satisfied. And she's like... Mm-hmm. I'm allowed to want certain things sexually in someone's body. She's like, men do this all the time. This is a big value for me. Um, this episode's really interesting because it has a graph. I mean, as it, as the show often does a graphic sex scene with Samantha doing various different things. I didn't remember it. And when I watched it, I thought it was really interesting for two reasons. One of them is that actually it gives a much stronger case for breaking up with James, regardless of the size of his penis is that she mm-hmm. wants to use a vibrator while having sex with him yes. and he yes. won't let her. So like yes. once I saw that, I was like, Oh, cause you know, initially you're like, fine, he's not that big, but like just do other <laughs> sexual things, like be creative sure. about it. Maybe sure. find some way that works for you. But they both, <laughs> they both want to have intercourse, like both of them. And yeah. he, he, he like refuses to even understand that it's an issue. And what she's trying to do is, very gamely come up with ways that she can be satisfied with this and he won't go for it. So at that point you have to be yeah. like, yeah, this is, so I actually thought it was a good unromantic graphic plot. The one thing about Samantha though is man, she's sort of horrible. <laughs> like in that she talks to her <laughs> friends and makes fun of her boyfriend's junk. Like it's weird. Yeah. Like, it, like a it, real it, person weird. who did that would be kind of, I mean, Samantha's like this a lot. And over the course of the show, they talk about her in this way. So I, I, I both, I both love the plot and part of what I like about it is it doesn't, it doesn't glamorize Samantha's behavior. Like Samantha's behavior is coarse enough that I think the show knows that she's being coarse. Um, although I did, I did feel for her in that scene where she bizarrely ogles guys in the locker room. <laughs> the guys in the locker room. Take a peek. But it's one of the re- episodes like this are one of the reasons that people are sometimes like Samantha's really a gay man. And I'm not denying that Samantha is a character who is outside the realm, even for super sex driven women, for just in her behavior. She feels more like a cartoonish, almost like superhero weirdo character like her behavior is really outlandish but i i feel like she actually hovers in between and a man and a woman in this behavior and what can i say i found there was something there's something very refreshing about having a character on a show who's so bluntly appreciative of men's bodies and likes certain things sexually <laughs> yeah i mean she ended up yeah it's okay. i, I think mean, there's people, also people something are always yeah, saying right. about the show they're like it was written by gay men and so it's about women who are really gay men and i do not buy that at all and actually while the show was created by a gay man all the writers for the show were women and they were all single women and it is there were a lot of women who directed the show as well so i think that's a very annoying thing that people say about it to try to dismiss it but it is true that when samantha behaves like this i know what they're talking about because <laughs> it's more but i also like a gay culture thing I appreciate to your point. I appreciate that she knows what she likes, that she that she understands her body, her desires, the things that she like I think that that's empowering. I think that she should, I you agree. know, we we, sh- we should be, you know, 
uh, exalting that. But um, she has a moment which I really love. She has a joke uh, where <laughs> she sees one of the players walk by and says, did you see his bulge? And then Miranda mm-hmm. says he's wearing a cup. And she says, well, his cup runneth over. <laughs> and know. then... And then Carrie. Carrie laughs, but she's drunk and kind of buzzed, and she laughs mm-hmm. too long, and it's fantastic. I love it. That is a great moment, because at first you think it's just this silly joke about the thing. Carrie, Sarah Jessica Parker <laughs> is so good in this episode, and the way yes. she laughs and the way her friends are both like, oh my god, you're smashed. It's actually, it's another thing you could create a montage of, is these tiny oh. scenes where people actually get really higher. So, and again, that's one of the reasons that this episode, it seems like it's about sex and about getting over men and in fact there's that whole meta plot in it about you guys talk a lot about men and but the episode is very much about how fun it is to hang out with women and talk about these things because it is like because that's that's at the heart of that scene is when they're all hanging out and kind of i don't know it's just a great goofy scene it's true i love that when when she when she giggles and then they're like it's it is (laughs) you're you've gone one step too far there are there are a couple moments Sarah Jessica Parker plays high or drunk so well, and I don't know what it is about the way she performs it. But there's the there's a season three episode where she gets high with. Um, I knew you were going to mention this episode. It's she, the greatest. Yeah, it's the best. Um, where she gets high, um, and then there's the episode in season six where she gets high as well. And whenever she gets high, she just can't stop giggling and laughing, and her like Wait. she can't control herself anymore. And it's fantastic. Wait a second. What are the two? Because one of them is where she dates. She dates the guy that it's like they've gone back to high school and he's living with yeah, the comic store guy. Yeah, that's yeah. a great. But and she has the, it has the best punchline payoff where she's like, "Yes, Mrs. So and So, this is my But what's the what's the other episode where she gets it's, high? It's actually think. it's the Post-it Note episode where. Oh right. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one. And I think then she and, also may get <laughs> high in the scene. Does she get high in the scene? The the much. Uh, much criticized by sexuality episode. Does she get high with that group of? I guess oh, she does get a little high there. Yes, yeah. yes, she does yeah. get high a little high there. But the, the season fun. six, you know the... enough about the show that we can just come up with like, what are all the scenes <laughs> of Carrie getting drunk? What are it's all just the there's scenes? something great about it. Like when yeah. she gets high in the post-it note episode and she's sharing that uh, banana split yeah. with Samantha, and Samantha's like, "Stop bogarting the split," yeah, like know. pulls it's it away so from funny. her. It's just that's the stuff to me that feels like it just feels real and genuine. It feels like actual friendship. Um, mm-hmm. And that stuff is lightning in a bottle. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's just so. Yeah. And that's the payoff of this episode, actually. It's yeah. The whole payoff of it is, as I said, like, I really love episodes where there's a genuine conflict between two mm-hmm. people. In this episode, the genuine conflict is Carrie's just heartbroken over Big and hung up on him and thinks she's seeing him everywhere. And she knows it's a little pathetic but she's also kind of wallowing in the raggedness of it. Cause it's just where she is. And totally. um, Char- Charlotte very sweetly is like, you know, here, here's what you have to do. Like, uh, you know, like it takes, it takes just as long to get over it. So you have to lean on us and just wallow in and eat. And she, she's very supportive, but Miranda is like, you have to stop. And she's basically says, you know, we're also self-indulgent. We're always talking about men. And she's mm-hmm. saying, you know, go out, get out of the house and stop talking about this guy. And her example is that she is over this guy that she broke up with two years ago. We left her for another woman. Yep. And it mm-hmm. really is a great, it, it, it is the thing the show does well is that when she, when Miranda sees that guy on the street and she runs away from him and mm-hmm. she's overwhelmed, 
you really get how compassionate the show is because the show is just saying you can make up all the rules that you want, but the truth is, you know, and, and you can say women shouldn't care about men like straight women when they're going through breakups, shouldn't obsess in this way. But the reality is you can't, you know, I think it's funny. My husband always put it in like a false quote from somebody where they say emotions are not skilled actors or something like that. Um, or something like skilled performers. I don't remember the exact line, but like, basically it's just like, you feel the thing that you feel. And so the final scene ends up being that bait and switch where you think that it's Carrie breaking down and going to see big. And it turns out it's Carrie going to see Miranda and it's really beautifully filmed. And I don't know. It sort of makes the whole thing click. I totally agree with you. I, I, I actually, so the, just because I wanted to read the line that Miranda says to to them before she storms out of the coffee shop, she says, how does it happen that such smart women have nothing to talk about but boyfriends? What about us? What we think, we feel, we know. Does it always have to be about them? She says that after trying to show them her palm pilot, by the way. Which is also I know, hilarious. which is a great uh, state moment. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but to your point, I wanted to kind of underline this a little bit because I do love the fact that this is a show that can allow those contradictions to exist in these characters, right? I mean, Miranda can feel this way and she's completely justified in feeling this way, which is that they shouldn't just be totally focused on the men in their lives. But then she can also be, you know, taken to her knees by seeing an ex in the middle of the street and need to talk to her friend about that. Like, I think the fact that, that those two things can exist in a character and is, is why this show is so special. I also really appreciate, and this is, again, the subtlety and craft, craft, craftsmanship, craft of the show is that in that scene where she sees Carrie in the restaurant, there's not a, it's not like a big discussion with a lot of super cheesy lines where they describe mm-hmm. how you're supposed to act. She literally just says, I was a jerk. You know, yeah. I, I have issues basically or something. I don't know exactly how she puts it. Yeah. She's like, I, I have my stuff. That's my stuff. And, you know, I, you know, I'm so sorry. Like they just, they, they really just summarize it and let it be this tender thing where two people mm-hmm. who know each other well without talking about it. She's like, I was humbled by my experience of having exactly what you're having going on. Why don't you just tell me what's up? And it's just, it's really lovely. But the, the thing that's so great about it is that it's framed by this classic romantic scene of Carrie picking up mm-hmm. a payphone, <laughs> mm-hmm. picking yeah. up a payphone yeah. and saying, I know things are weird between us. Can we go to our place? So it's this super intimate thing. And then this race to the diner and then a long shot of her going into the diner and looking around for the person she's looking for. You absolutely mm-hmm. think that it's the payoff was big. And then it's Miranda. And I just think that, that, that it's like, it's, it's in a weird way. It frames that earlier scene where Miranda complains that they talk about men too much. And it sort of says, this show actually isn't about men per se. It's about taking women's experiences seriously in their relationships. And that conversation with them is about men, but the scene is about them. <laughs> it's a great scene. For sure. I, I also just, um, I, I want to highlight one, one quick thing, um, which is there's, there are stylistic choices in this show and, and, and credit should be given to, um, to the director of the pilot, Susan uh, Seidelman, who did the pilot right. back in uh, 1998. Um, there, there are almost almost film noirish components to the show uh, in the early seasons. You know, the cigarettes, the looking out of windows with rain, the voiceover, the payphones. It has this kind of, um, you know, 
film noir kind of component that I think is really interesting um, and, and adds to sort of the flavor of the show. And I don't mean film noir in the sense of crime or anything like that, obviously, but just that sense of that hard-boiled kind of, um, you know, thing turned on its head and deconstructed through this romantic comedy lens, I think is really interesting. And I think a lot of that has to do with Carrie's implied fantasy of who she is in New York and her idea of New York, which actually yeah. does have to do with it's raining and you go under a awning and talk to yeah. a stranger and end up in a bar. I mean, it's, it's actually the reason that her and Big's relationship makes sense because they both seem to share this extremely hyper romantic notion that they're actually characters in the forties in New York who dress up <laughs> yeah. and go out for cocktails. Like, I don't think the people around them think that way. And I think it's the thing that, you know, if I'm making up sort of backstory for people's chemistry. And so that's yep. sometimes, re that's sometimes reflected in the show, which is a very bright, you know, has bright <clears throat> colors and stuff, but I think you're right. It has that kind of moody quality as well. For sure. Especially to your point, especially with big, the, the banter, the, the, the nicknames they have for each other, him calling her kid. Like there's just stuff that, that all makes it feel kind of, Winky in a kind of you know thirties forties kind of way, um, way which I think where, the scene where she sees Big for the first time is murder in this episode because it's like even if you don't even if you have problems yeah. with Big as I do like I'm not like one of those oh Big yeah. me. but you get it in <laughs> that scene yep. like he just he yep. goes up to her he touches her on yep. the shoulder and he's talking about that tabloid photo of her which is such a great little yep. New York thing that they're in this tabloid <laughs> and, and, and what does he say he just says he never looks better but in this very confiding yep. way. And then he walked yep. away. And then I'm just yep. like, you're a murderer. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, like her heart is beating and she's just yeah. destroyed. And it's just it's yeah. a very relatable <laughs> thing. It's, it's good just, stuff. They make you they um, make you feel it. Yeah. So so to, to to wrap up, I just want to ask this question, which I'm gonna do in every episode of this of this series. Um, who is your favorite character on the show and why? <laughs> I feel like picking somebody really like Skipper. <laughs> Skipper is my yeah, it's, favorite character. It's, it's Skipper. <laughs> he never got. I wonder how he's doing. I know, like, yeah, there, were just, yeah. there were only a few characters on the show that I feel like I would have actually met, and basically Skipper and Burger. Um, but let's, let's <laughs> I really feel like if you want me to pick a favorite character, I shouldn't pick one of the four yeah. girls. Um, you don't. You don't have to. You can pick whoever you want. Yeah, I just feel like I should pick some strange offbeat character. Um, because I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't mean to put you on the spot. I just thought you uh, you might. Well, I don't have the thing is of the four of the four women. I don't have a favorite character in that way. I mean, I'm like many women like me. Like I, I probably had Miranda is the most relatable character, but and I actually think the show is really smart about sure. how it shows Miranda being confronted with her own you know, snobbishness, judgmentalness, like, mm -hmm. like, like there are a lot of qualities there, but just, I'm saying demographically, just in terms of her interests and her type of sense of humor and her philosophy or something. But, um, you know, I do find Carrie a very relatable person. Like I said, I was working at Nerve Magazine with curly hair. <laughs> at her exact age, I was working as a freelance writer. So it's like, I have to relate a little bit to Carrie. Um, but, sure, but, but, sure. but you're not asking who you relate to. Like, are you? No, I'm just that? asking who your you're favorite saying, was. Who do you like? Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, some days my favorite is Samantha, just because she's a very original character on the show. And I love Marilla too. I don't. Wait, I gotta pick somebody. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. <laughs> 
I'm trying to pick a like I, I I'll I'll pick one of Carrie's boyfriends or some okay one of these, one of these random people. I don't know. It feels cheesy to pick somebody who's likable, like you know Harry or somebody. <laughs> I'll just pick. I'll just be super boring and pick Carrie. <laughs> Carrie's a Carrie's it's a great a pick. He's interesting he, character. He, yeah. Oh, Harry. Yeah. He, Harry's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that, Emily, look, I, you're talking to a person who has refused to write top 10 lists every year. So I'm not the person to ask for a favor. Oh, my apologies. I, I didn't mean yeah. to put you on the spot. I didn't, okay. I didn't know you had a, a disdain for lists. <laughs> yeah. I have a difficult time with them. I understand. More like a pathology than a, than a disdain. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on to talk about, uh, about the show and about this episode with me. It's, it really is a thrill. And I, and I hope that you'll come back in the future for other television shows or movies or anything of that nature. Well, it was very fun. Thank you for inviting me. And honestly, given what a crazy, awful year this has been, it was a real <laughs> relief to, to actually yeah. flash back to 1999 when people are like mm-hmm. bragging about their Palm Pilot and suggesting that that's superior to talking about men. Oh, believe me, I just uh, I just did 20 episodes on uh, on Felicity's 1999 episodes, and it was <gasps> a, a glorious expen- a glorious to get out of uh, oh. out of 2020. God, Felicity, another show I love. Anyway, have yeah. a, have a yes. good time, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And where can people find you? They can find you on Twitter at Emily Nussbaum, correct? And uh, uh, yeah, at the New Yorker? I'm at, at Emily okay. Nussbaum. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm on book leave right now, actually, because I'm, oh. I'm, working, on, oh. I'm working on a book. But, um, but I will be back at the New Yorker, and everybody should read the New Yorker magazine. <laughs> it's a wonderful magazine. <laughs> I'm not writing for them right now. I'll be back in January. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.